Paul here in chapter 7 is restarting his narrative that he began back in chapter 2. And so chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he opens up this little bit of narrative section, and then all of chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6 really describe and detail what it is that's going on in, in, the, in this time in Macedonia. And so he restarts his narrative from back in chapter 2, verse 13. Follow along with me. He says this, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. Okay? So Paul is facing immense disruption and internal struggle while he's at Troas, even though he knows that the Lord opened this door. And so, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And so he's picking up this story again, back in chapter 7, and especially in verse 5. But he's describing his experience in Macedonia, where he experienced and faced constant and continual difficulties, both internal and external. Read verse 5, back in chapter 7 with me. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. And so this story is continuing. This struggle that Paul has experienced is, is intense, and he's describing it. And he says, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear Within And so there's this internal struggle, this in deep insecurity within the Apostle Paul, whether that's anxiety, depression, something deep in his soul, and then there was this conflict external, likely with others. And he describes this uh, multiple times throughout this letter. If you remember um, back in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, back in chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, Paul has declared and described the immense pressures hardships and trials that he's already endured. And yet, time and time again, God's deliverance has been put on full display. Okay? If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul's ready to give it. He's ready to just let the Lord take him home. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And here's the deliverance in verse 10. God's faithfulness to Paul, he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In chapter 2, verse 12 it's the same idea of this hardship breaking open, these trials, the suffering breaking open into the deliverance that God brings. Chapter 2, verse 12 is a passage we read. For when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us into triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So multiple times, again in chapter six, we're not gonna look at that, chapter, or, sorry, chapter four, he has this idea of where he describes these incredible struggles that give way to the deliverance of God. And so Paul caps off this section 
chapter 1 through chapter 7, by laying out three actions that God performs for his people. And we're going to work through these here in chapter 7. Three actions that God performs for his people in the midst, in the midst of trials and hardship. And the first one is this. God uses other believers to encourage us in trials. God uses Christians, the church, his people, to encourage us and comfort us and strengthen us in trials. The phrase in verse 6, but God. That phrase we saw in chapter 1, the phrase we saw again in chapter 2, but God encapsulates all of Paul's life and ministry. It's the whole reason that ministries like Celebrate Recovery here at Lakeside Church exist. Because the but God. Our lives, the chaos, the disaster, the mess, the internal pain, the struggle we face, the things that people do to us, and faithfulness to us is what Paul reminds us. And he says in verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. This verse reminds us of how the letter began. All of 2 Corinthians, and that's why we've entitled it Powerful Grace, but God for weak people. Verse one, or chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, or literally compassion, and the God of all encouragement, comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort or encouragement with which he, we ourselves are comforted by God. But God. Listen, for you and I today, God is the one who encourages us through those days where you can hardly get out of bed. God is the one who strengthens you and bolsters you when you can't even move in the shower and you've been in there so long, the hot water runs out. God is the one who encourages the downcast and the depressed. He strengthens the despondent and the distressed. He bolsters the downtrodden and the dispossessed. All of us face these kind of hardships. Some of them take form in addictions. Others take form in death or grief, extreme loss. For some, it's betrayal. Others, it's mistakes that you can't even forgive yourself for. The trials, the suffering, the hardship, the things people have done to us, God is the one who encourages you through them. But notice, it's nuanced. It's not just this divine beam that comes down from heaven in the darkness of your closet or your bedroom. It's not this Shekinah glory that just blows up on the scene all the time. It's actually through very ordinary and maybe subversive, subtle means by which God provides encouragement. Look at how he does this in verses 6 and 7. Notice how Paul articulates the encouragement and where it comes from. That word comfort or encouragement is used four times here in verses 6 and 7. And it comes from both God 
and Titus. It comes through friendship, people, ordinary means. You see, in verse 7, he says, or verse 6, he's comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which Titus was comforted by you. As he told us of your longings, your mournings, your zeal for me, that I rejoice still the more. You see, when Titus went to Corinth to assess and check on this troubled church, he was encouraged by their longings, their mournings, and their zeal for Paul. And again, Paul and this church have had intense conflict over the years. Of course, this brought incredible joy to the Apostle Paul, and Paul used Titus in his visit to the Corinthian believers to not only encourage Paul and his teammates, but he also encouraged Titus. And this idea, this action that God performs in the midst of trials is that he uses other believers to encourage us in our hardship. This is why the lie, this is why the lie of isolation is so crippling, okay? Last weekend, I preached the four G's of the gospel at our youth retreat, and Tim Chester says in his book, you can change, that behind every sin and every negative emotion is a lie. And so we dove deep with the teens about this last week, some 65 plus teens, and we talked about the lies in our lives that we are tempted to believe and time and time again, as pastors, as church leaders, we see this lie of isolation creep into God's people's minds of, if I'm by myself, if I pull myself away from other people, I'm going to be better off. I'm going to be safer. I'm going to be more secure. And it is absolutely a lie because it does the opposite of what we think it will do. Isolation is one of the tactics of the evil one. And you need God's people, you need truth speakers in love to be able to help you, to be able to listen to you, to be able to be with you, to be able to comfort you in those times when you're tempted to withdraw rather than lean in. And so God uses other believers to encourage us in our trials, and the truth is, is there's life in the community of faith as we are tied to Jesus as our head. The second action that God performs for his people in the midst of trials is that he leads us to repentance as we endure grief and trials. God leads us into repentance as we endure grief and trials. It is here where Paul addresses that tearful letter that he sent earlier. That's why this is technically, from what we know, the third letter that he sent to the Corinthians. So in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there's this letter that he talks about in chapter 2, verse 4, if you want to look at that later. Chapter 2, verse 4 in 2 Corinthians, he addresses this tearful letter, and he addresses it again here in verse 8. This letter was a firm apostolic rebuke and correction for a wayward church who was tolerating open sin. And here Paul highlights the excruciating process of church discipline and correction. Read verse 8 with me. Follow along. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You see that? 
or you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. The Apostle Paul was grieved. That word has this idea of producing sorrow or pain. And it is used eight, eight times in verses 8 through 11. He was grieved in writing the letter as it caused the Corinthians pain. But he wasn't grieved in the fact that it produced the intended outcome and goal. The whole reason he wrote this letter was for a godly grief. Do you see that? Literally in the original, it has this idea of grief according to God. It's a godly grief. And he says that this godly grief or this sorrow according to God leads to repentance. Leads to repentance. A side note here, probably one of the least fun parts about being a pastor is this, is the idea of church uh, intervention, church discipline. And some pastors just avoid it altogether. They just don't do it. But true love, true care, true shepherding offers correction and instruction in love. And The goal of church intervention or the goal of church discipline is never, it is never punitive. Why? Because God the Father is never punitive towards us, okay? And so anytime that Lakeside Church operates in church intervention or church discipline, same thing, the goal is always restorative. It's always restoration. It's always reconciliation. And I can tell you, I can tell you from experience, it is the hardest thing, one of the hardest things to endure as church leaders. The motive is always love. Some churches do it as a badge of honor. Some pastors do it to be right. And I'm telling you that it is not about being right for us. We get no joy. It is not, it's the time where we cry the most and have the most sleepless nights as church leaders. Asking God to do something in the lives of our people because sin and the sin of others affects the whole body. And we have a huge responsibility to everyone. And so this idea here, Paul is beginning to peel back the layers so that the Corinthians can see how how hard it is as an apostle, how difficult it is to love them from afar, how heavy the weight of leadership is. But he reminds them that it is never punitive, it is always restorative. So this idea of godly grief that leads to repentance, we've got to unpack a few things first. Repentance first. Repentance is often a misunderstood word or concept. At face value, just simply, it means a change, a turn about, a conversion of sorts, okay? So that's base, at its basic meaning, that's what repentance is. It's a, a turning away from something towards God, the biblical definition. And the the goal of grief when it accords with God or this idea of godly grief is that it leads us 
or it leads to this change or turning about. That's the goal, okay? And so just like being a parent, discipline and correction is not to make your kids' life miserable, right, kids? Your parents love you like crazy, and the goal is always, it is never punitive, it is always to lead you to life, all right? It's the idea of this goal of grief in, as it accords to God, is, is, I liken it to when we're doing counseling and helping people, it's the difference between saying, I'm sorry, when you're apologizing, to say that I was wrong will you forgive me? Okay? People say, I'm sorry all the time. And they say it in tones like that. Oh, I'm just sorry. Yeah, everybody can totally see that, right? It means nothing. It's a cop-out often. I'm not saying every time, but a large majority, I'm sorry, means absolutely jack squat. For people to look someone in the eye and say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I will try and not do that again in the future. Speaks to this idea of turning away. I don't want to do that anymore because I see now the pain, the hurt, the sorrow it has caused you versus, I'm sorry, deal with it. I'm sorry. And you have zero desire to change. Do you see the difference? And so repentance is this idea, or godly grief that leads to repentance is this idea of inner change. It's more than just lip service. And Paul will go on to distinguish the value of godly grief, literally that sorrow that is according to God, versus a grief that is worldly. Do you see that? He talks about this idea of worldly grief in verse 10. Living in a sin-fallen world has distorted everything that is good. And this is what worldly grief is. Worldly grief is this idea that produces death. He's going to talk about that. Because we live in a sin-fallen world and everything that is good is distorted, even to the point where God's goodness in his person and his character is doubted among God's people and disavowed by humanity, God's most prized creation, grief that this world produces leads to death. It is sorrow that turns one to something else other than God himself. That's what it is. It looks like a host of different things for people. The, big, the common ones, the most ones that we see all the time are alcohol and materialism. People try to fill their lives to work through the grief. It's called retail therapy. We joke about it, but it's no joking matter because it's, it runs deep in the heart to try to salve that hurt, those wounds, that emptiness that we feel, this grief. And I'm telling you, that's worldly grief and it will always lead you to death. Godly grief always leads you to repentance in Jesus. A change to Jesus. It can look like sex or porn. It can look like drugs. It can look like, here we go, it can look like religion. 
got my life together. I'm a deacon in the church. I give. I sing in the choir. I do all of these things. And it's been decades since I've repented. It's been years since I've confessed my sin before God and, and just earnestly asked him to help me change. Yes, we can use, oh, we can use religion. And that is a worldly grief that will lead you straight to the pit of hell. For the Corinthians, godly grief produced an earnestness within them unlike anything else. You see, godly grief leads to salvation. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There's no remorse. I will never, you will never regret it. And for the Corinthians in verse 11, Paul lists this whole list of what this godly grief produced in them. Look at it. For see what earnestness, this passion, this godly grief has produced in you, but what also what earnestness to clear yourselves or this idea of a, a clear conscience or defense, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, this idea of justice, like you yearn and long for what is right. That's what godly grief has done. He says, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this manner. This list that Paul details is the work and exertion that godly grief produced within them to not only reconcile them to the Apostle Paul, but thereby allowed them to live with a clear conscience and an innocent, or that word literally means pure and holy. Pure and holy life, you see, verse 12, in the sight of God. The word innocent there does not mean that the Corinthians did not do anything wrong. What that means is, is that they ended up reconciling because of repentance. They ended up being in the right because of repentance. And so the second action that God does for his people in the midst of trials is that God leads us to repentance as we endure grief and trials. And so the question is, God, what is it that you are asking of me in this really hard place? What control do I need to relinquish? What thing am I holding on to as my salve, as my, as my thing that will get me, my coping mechanism that will get me through this? And anything but Jesus I think we will be sorely disappointed in the end because it can't satisfy us like God can. A word of application to help us tease this out. Some of you may have the question in your mind, so how do we know that we're enduring through godly grief? Or to put it another way, what indicators are there that help us understand that we're not wasting our suffering, okay? Like, how do I know or how do I assess whether or not I'm growing in faith as a disciple of Jesus when times are hard and I've screwed up? I, like, I know I've screwed up, but I'm moving in the right direction. Well, I think the litmus test is this. 
The litmus test seems to be whether or not we are growing in our need for Jesus in the midst of the hardship. By way of analogy, this idea of a fruit tree. Okay, Think of a fruit tree with me. When the tree is very small and is producing no fruit but just limbs and leaves, maybe a few blossoms, it only requires a certain amount of nutrients from the soil, water, that sort of thing. Give that fruit tree 20 years and the trunk is this big rather than this big. It's got all sorts of branches, all sorts of leaves, all sorts of blossoms producing mass amounts of fruit. How much more nutrients does that mature tree need versus the one who's just started? Do you see the analogy? As we grow in Jesus, our need for him and nourishment in him increases. Does that make sense? And I think the litmus test to help us understand is that if we're growing in faith and discipleship through our hardship, does our propensity to turn to Jesus happen more quickly? Do we spend more time with him? Does our appetite, does our need for nourishment from heaven above and the creator who loves us, does that increase in quality, in quantity, in frequency, in time spent? And so I think that test is helpful as we mature in life with Jesus that our need for him increases. And I think it helps us assess whether our grief will lead us to salvation, to repentance and salvation, or whether our grief will lead us into the world's lies and ultimately to death. So God uses other believers to encourage us in trials. And secondly, he leads us to repentance as we endure grief and trials. And thirdly, God grants us joy when trials are experienced in community. Paul closes this section by describing his feelings of encouragement, comfort, joy, and rejoicing. In verse 13, he says this, Therefore, we are comforted. We are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still the more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Jump to verse 15. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. The church at Corinth changed. There was repentance. And he says, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. See, the Corinthians' repentance and obedience to the Spirit's prompting through Titus produced an incredible amount of joy. And rejoicing. Notice, though, that Paul doesn't talk in ways or he doesn't mention that his sufferings or his trials went away. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often pray that way. I know I do. I just asking God to get rid of the stuff in my life, like take away the hardship rather than asking him to give me joy through it. And I'm not saying you can't pray for him to take it away, but it seems like Apostle Paul is suggesting that God works primarily in and through it. So 
this idea that God gives joy in the midst of hardship. When Paul wrote this stern and tearful letter, it produced a godly grief that led to repentance and obedience. Titus was then refreshed and encouraged. If you look at verse 13, Titus received blessing from it, which caused Paul and his teammates to be encouraged and filled with joy. And so repentance, sanctification, and growth in the gospel is truly a community project. This lone maverick, this isolationist Christian doesn't exist in the New Testament scriptures. It's to be done together with the one another's. Is it messy? Absolutely. You know why? Because we're all humans. Even as pastors, I'm gonna disappoint you. Many of you are probably already disappointed <laughs> in some way, shape, or fashion. And again, it's not on purpose. It's just because I'm flawed. I don't have it all together. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still asking God to teach me and show me and shape me. And the same grace that we extend to each other is what we need to do. To, to those that are close to us, we need to do as a church family. Repentance, sanctification, and growth in the gospel is to be done in the faith family as we grow together in holiness. I don't have a slide for this, uh, but Ephesians chapter 4. If you take a minute and flip over to Ephesians chapter 4, or just follow along. He says this in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Apostle Paul is talking about the gifts given to the church, and apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, and he says this in verse 15. Sp rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, Jesus, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We want Lakeside to grow. We want you as Lakeside members to produce fruit in your life. We want you to experience God's joy for you even when life is tough. God is the one who encourages you when life is brutal. God grants us joy when trials are experienced in community. So three points in application as we lead our way to the Lord's table together, because I can't think of any better way to reflect on suffering and the power of God that allows us to endure in trials through the gift of others, through repentance, and through joy as we celebrate in community. I can't think of a better way to finish this service than with the Lord's table. But by way of application, a few thoughts. Many of you are suffering, I know that. We've talked, you've called me. You've sat in my office, I've sat in your home. You're hurting. And my encouragement to you this morning is don't waste your suffering. God's not going to waste it. And my question for you is, does, does your hardship, does your trial, does it lead you back to Jesus? 
down that road of repentance, of changing the way that you think, the way that you operate so that your life looks more and more like Jesus as you rub shoulders with him. You see, that's the entire point of godly grief. And that's why we say don't waste your suffering because God's doing something in those hard places. As bodybuilders train, they're literally shredding their muscles apart. Do you think that's fun? Do you think it feels good? Absolutely not. But the goal in that is to produce something special. And the goal in grief and hardship is this tearing down of the fleshly and worldly appetites in our souls so that we look more and more like Jesus. If you remember back in chapter 4, we're jars of clay so that people aren't impressed by the external jar, but they're impressed by what the jar contains, what's inside. Don't waste your suffering. Number two, are you growing in your need for Jesus? Some of you have sat here and listened to virtually almost every sermon I've preached here at Lakeside in the last five years. Is your heart changing? Are you growing in your need and your desire for Jesus? Or is it just pure religion? It's like the old adage of the more you learn and know, the more you find out how much you have to learn and how much you don't know. Right? So true maturity lends to humility, not arrogance. Lends to helping others come along, not just sitting on your duff and doing nothing. Like, it does something for you and moves you into this way of living for people. And so, are you growing in your need for Jesus? And if you are, who is someone you can encourage today? Who is that someone? You you know, some of you have the gift of encouragement. If you remember back in Romans 12, I skipped over this passage, but some of you have the gift, spiritual gift of encouragement. People that come to mind are like Trish Hoagie, this quiet soul who just encourages behind the scenes. Evan and Natasha have that same idea, that vibe that they just encourage, they love. Mike Lusbrock, the Blanchards, you guys just encourage people so well. And that's your gift, and you need to exercise it. Use it for the strength of the body. So who is someone each of us can encourage today? Lastly, don't do this life alone. Don't do your Christian life alone. Connect with God's people. That's the whole reason we're doing this this morning, right? It's not for Lakeside's fame. It's not for us to be like the church in worth. It's not anything about that. It's not about the budgets and the money. It's not about this or that. It's about so that you can experience God in the every day, the Monday through Saturdays, and come together after a hard week and these lies combating your mind and your soul so that you can hear truth and receive nourishment and, 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 and find truth in Jesus because knowing that, knowing Jesus, he'll set you free. John 8, that truth will set you free. So connect with God's people here on Sunday mornings, missional community groups throughout our city meet for that same exact purpose, 
Because Sundays aren't enough. Sundays aren't enough. Celebrate recovery, youth ministry, you name it, the list goes on. We're here to try to cultivate community that encourages one another in love. The bread and the juice are tangible reminders for you and I this morning to come be invited to the feet of Jesus and to his sacrifice for you and I. It's an opportunity for us to carry out these truths that I just spoke about this morning in tangible ways. We don't take it in isolation, we take it together. It's a communal meal, it's a communal experience. There's warnings in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians that are so grave if you have sin towards each other because in God's mind, that is a representation that you lack clarity in the gospel because the horizontal relationships affect the vertical and vice versa. And so he invites us in tangible ways to take this cup and drink it that reflects and reminds us and symbolizes, internalizes the blood of Jesus that was paid it all for you so that you don't have to earn it and we don't definitely deserve it as we just sang. It's a free gift. And that kind of love is an extension that we are to offer to the world. Our ethic is love. Not judgment, not being right, not about denominations, not about lakeside. It's about Christ's love in and through us. And this table is a tangible reminder to help us in that.